You are listening to the Sonya Dunn Show. I am Sonya Dunn. Our guest today is Keith White. Keith's journey in life has been one of innovation and providing connection for others. Early in his career, he has had an eye for developing cutting-edge technology in emerging markets. His latest brainchild is the Afro Animation Summit. Keith walks us through his journey from media entertainment distribution to media innovator today on the Sonya Dunn Show. Ask you the most, the, the toughest question I have off the bat. All right. Did little Keith know that he wanted to get into the animation arena as a little kid? Absolutely not. <laughs> I had no idea. It just happened by default. Uh, so what were your dreams as far as growing up? Did you have any occupational dreams, like the typical dreams that a, a, a little kid had growing up? Did anything inspire you? I, I, well, I think, you know, back in that time, you know, uh, like all other kids, you wanted to be like an astronaut or something like that. Uh, at least that's kind of what I remember, you know, being distinct. Uh, but, you know, uh, we had in the community, of course, leaders that were doctors and lawyers. And perhaps maybe I thought about law at one time. But, you know, I think the astronaut was like what I recall that stands out the most. So um, when you decided to go to school and, and graduate high school and start your life as an adult, what were you gravitating to? Uh, marketing. Marketing, um, Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny because when um, I was a sophomore in college, I did an intern one summer uh, doing accounting and kind of thought that maybe that's where I would go. And I just didn't like sitting at a desk crunching numbers all day. <laughs> so I switched uh, my major and, and uh, went for marketing. And I believe that's my sweet spot. So what was your first job in marketing then? The first job I had in marketing? Yeah. Is that what's yeah. the question? Yeah. Um, so I did an intern with um, IBM while I was in school. Okay. Um, and I was a marketing support representative. And it was about 20 hours a week. Um, and so I would go, I was going to school down in uh, Miami. And... Um, I would go up to Fort Lauderdale, which is where the IBM office was. And so I was supporting at that time um, the sales reps that were selling PCs, IBM PCs. Uh, if you remember those back in the day, they were in the PC business. So anything with respect to like cold calling, following up with customers, when there was a equipment installation, we would follow up to make sure, I would follow up to make sure uh, that if the customers had questions or concerns or anything I could address for them. And then we did a uh, training program. So I was part of uh, helping to set up those training programs for customers. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm in a room that. Okay. Not a problem. So it's fine because it's, it's, it's an audio podcast. So you're, if, if you come on and all, I, oh, I, okay. I, I thought, 
I thought maybe I did something. <laughs> so I was like, what happened? No, I, I'm actually in a room where if you don't move, the light automatically oh, goes off. So got it, got it, it's, an, it. It, it's an energy saver. Got it, got it. Um, so then how did you get into the media industry? Was it through marketing? Um, so I went to school when I was going to school down in Florida, uh, college, my first two years. Um, there was a gentleman, his name was Frank Ricardo. Uh, he was a little bit of an older student, I would say. And, you know, it's just a, a cool guy. And so um, after college, I saw that he had this company um, that was licensing and syndicating uh, ethnic themed black movies and TV shows. Uh, I don't know if you remember on Sundays, uh, Ruby D and Ozzy Davis would host. Uh, yes. So that was that was his company, and I thought like, wow, that's really fascinating. Like I know him personally. Like if he could do it, I know I could do it. And, and so it was just like just really amazing knowing him personally and seeing what he had done and being able to get, you know, ethnic themed content, black content, black movies on national television in syndication was just unbelievable to me. And so I started down the road of uh, reaching out to movie studios to see how I could license uh, black movies. So, so I started a TV syndication company called Black Broadcasting Network for BBN. Wow. And so we would go to Turner Broadcasting or Universal Warner Brothers. Um, and we would look at what was available for syndication in terms of their movie content and their movie library. And so I struck my first deal with, uh, with Warner Brothers. And that's how I got into media. So then you've been on the, the distribution side of, of media. Yes, it was primarily yeah. distribution. Distribution and actually ad sales. So uh, what we would yeah, do. Yeah, because they kind of go hand in hand. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. We would yeah. license and then we would have to sell the 30 second spots to make the revenue. Yeah. Times have changed for that, hasn't it? You don't have to hustle oh. like that. <laughs> Total, total different animal, totally different animal. Uh, but, you know, Byron Allen has been very successful with that model, as, as we all see. Uh, he was, there were three Black uh, syndicators when I started, at least, you know, there were others, but I, I, I would say as, you know, African-American men, it was Frank McCardo in New York, it was Byron Allen in LA, and it was me in Washington, D.C. Get out of here. So you, you actually started your company in Washington, D.C. because you know we're based in, in D.C. I'm in D.C. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I went to, well, my last two years when uh, um, I transferred, I transferred to Howard. Get out of here. And then you started your company here in, in the D.C. area. Yep. Yep. Wow. Wow. So you're a Howard alum. Um, Brent's making new out of college owning your own company, um, hobnobbing with major studios. Um, how did that feel for you? Because you were doing something that, as you said, your mentor was doing, uh, who was decades older than you. 
Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, it was great. Like, you know, it took me probably two years to get my first uh, licensed deal from Warner Brothers. And I was going out to California, New York, uh, talking to um, the movie studios about uh, licensing content for syndication. Um, I just really had a passion for it. It was something that I really enjoyed doing. I think the thrill of being able to accomplish licensing content um, and then converting that to where you are able to have it broadcast um, nationwide, reaching about 80 million TV households, which really was sort of the threshold for national advertisers like the Cokes and the McDonald's to advertise uh, nationally within your, your broadcast, um, broadcast and movie. But then syndication, you, you know, like Oprah syndicated her show, uh, when she had the Oprah show, it syndicated uh, by, I believe it started with the King Brothers. But long story short, it's market by market. So you have to go to an NBC, an ABC, a CBS, a Fox, or back then, UPN or WB, and get one of those broadcasters to carry that content or that movie or that TV show within a certain window. And so, uh, you know, you go to the conferences where all the distributors are, uh, and then, you know, you sit to your desk and you either pick up the phone or you're faxing out uh, to the VPs of programming for all of these different TV stations across the United States in these different markets. And uh, at that time, before the FCC changed the uh, local affiliate TV station ownership rules, uh, you could deal directly with the VP of programming who had some discretionary time to put in programming that was that didn't come from the network. Right. And so you could make deals as a small indicate uh, syndicator uh, like that. And, and so that was just really exciting. I mean, it was a green field of, you know, you, you get good content. Uh, the market was there and there was a need for content because they had time to fill uh, on TV stations. And so it was really exciting. Yeah. Because um, a lot of people don't know as far as, I mean, as far as, I mean, it seems like dream job. You just get the content from Warner Brothers or other major studios, but then you had to actually go out there and hustle to make those contacts with all of these small networks um, and stations to, in order to get your programming on their, as far as on, oh, as far as on their station. Right. So there was a three-step sort of process. So you acquire the programming or licensing, license it from the, the network or from the studio. Then you've got to go out and you've got to distribute in the sense of get the network local, a network local affiliate station in each of the TV markets. So you reached up to 80 million households to cover during a specific window, let's say one week or two weeks or one month. And during the license period of the programming. And then you had to go sell that 30 second national ad spot to a national uh, advertiser, obviously through their ad agencies, um, mostly you know based out of New York or uh, Detroit for the auto industry and then uh, Los Angeles. Some, so, some in Oakland as well. Yeah. So how long did you do this? Or do you still do it? I. No, I don't do it anymore. I did it for three years. Okay. 
and then you move towards I guess somebody swooped you up and um, said, hey, we need to have him in-house. Is that what happened? So so I was mentioning earlier, the FCC um, changed the television station ownership rules. Back then, uh, no network could own, could own more than 16 stations. When the FCC opened that up, then all of these acquisitions of local network affiliates started happening by the ABC parent, the CBS, so they could own more uh, more stations when that rule changed. What that, how that affected the small syndicator was that the corporate kept taking some of that time that the local VP of programming had from that station where right. he can make deals with local syndicators. The networks kept taking more and more of that, you know, time from them. And so what, we found as a small syndicator was being our programming being buried overnight. So we 2 a.m., 1 a.m. on the weekday. And so obviously you have to guarantee a, a Nielsen rating to your advertising um, partnership. Right. And so it becomes tough to make, you know, a decent rating when you're overnight. You know, the great thing I would give, you know, credit to in terms of Byron Allen is that he really kind of became the king of late night, you know, like, I don't care, or I don't know what he was charging, but, you know, he just kept at it and expanded his inventory of, um, of shows and, and ad, uh, ad, ad time. And even if he was uh, pricing it at a, a, a discount, um, you know, if you have, you know, 500, 1,000 units of ad time to sell a year. And if you're selling, you know, each at 3,000 or 2,000, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's great money. And the great thing too is that he didn't license his programming. He actually created original programming so he could control the cost of production. When you go to license a movie from a movie studio, I mean, it just doesn't come cheap. I mean, right. it could be 100,000, it could be 200,000. Or, or even more for whatever window you're looking to uh, exploit that content in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so what did you move to then? What did you move to after? I got that? into real estate. I, I got into acquiring real estate. So I started buying uh, properties in Florida and um, built up a sizable inventory uh, of property and, you know, when there came an opportunity to unload them, sell them, um, I did that. So how did you get back into the media industry? Yeah, you know, I had an itch because I had success in the syndication world early um, and I loved media, but fast forward now, we're around 2008, 2009, um, which I believe is when YouTube came out. And I'm looking at the YouTube model and I'm saying to myself, wow, there needs to be a family friendly version of YouTube. Uh, I mean, YouTube was the wild, wild west of user generated content, yes. but at that they time. also were not, yeah, at that time they were not selling ads. And I think a lot of uh, family brand, you know, advertisers and national ones, the big ones were like, hesitant to put their content on YouTube because the content was just all over the place, you know, some of it sketchy, 
low-hanging fruit. So I built a platform called Zuga TV, which was the family-friendly version of YouTube. And quite frankly, we were very successful in getting these uh, family consumer brands, national ones, to uh, advertise. So we were one of the first video platforms uh, back then to receive what is so iconic on YouTube today, which is that 30-second pre-roll video spot that you watch on YouTube to be before you yeah. actually get to the video. Yeah. So we were one of the first to actually have that format and we did uh, extremely well. The problem with that, and this is why YouTube waited uh, probably four or five years before they actually started running ads is that it killed the user experience. Like users at that time, 2008, 9, 10, just wanted to get to their video. They didn't want to see an ad. So we launched with uh, tremendous success in terms of users coming onto the platform and watching our videos. And by this time, I had made uh, deals with various uh, video sources like AP, Reuters, uh, Viacom, and some others uh, to get video content onto our daily basis. So we had great content across a lot of different genres. But then when we put those ads on top, the users were like, no, 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 no. And so it killed the user experience. And that was a big lesson I had to learn because our uh, user uh, base on a monthly basis went down pretty significantly. And so, you know, you have to very much like on the TV spot, you have to guarantee a rating. You have to, you know, obviously uh, have so many eyeballs looking at this content as these sponsors are paying you to advertise. So, uh, and to reach a specific demographic or audience. And so, you know, it was a learning lesson. Um, and and so now I understand why YouTube cautiously and strategically waited for quite a long time to introduce uh, videos uh, in front of their content because they knew there was a chance they could hurt the user experience. So then you moved from being a, a platform owner to then moving towards what was next for key? Um, so I went from that to um, developing um, digital platforms in the music industry. So um, I was vacationing a lot and had a lot of great friends in the Dominican Republic. And one of them worked for the wireless carrier called Orange, which is a French telecom company. And this was pre-iTunes. Remember uh, when you used to be able to download your song through Verizon or your phone or something like that? Right. So, you know, that was happening at that time in the United States. It was happening overseas. Uh, but I recognize like in the Dominican Republic, they didn't have a premium catalog for downloaded music. So I um, approached Sony Music Latin in Miami um, to um, represent or license their catalog to provide downloadable music content in the Dominican Republic. And a gentleman by the name of Seth and Sony Music Latin was, uh, again, took two years of talking, convincing, gave me my first uh, deal um, to develop 
um, this platform that really acted as the bridge between Sony Music's content, digital content on one side and the mobile carrier. So when a user wanted to request a song, that process of requesting and retrieving and then sending back to that individual's phone was the platform that we built. So Keith, you've just been a trailblazer. Well, um, I, I, you know, have seen opportunities in the market and just, you know, took the bull by the horns and, and went for it. So evidently you were successful. So did you move to another phase um, after this, as far as the Sony music, Latin, Latin Sony music or? Yes. Um, it seemed then like you I stayed into um, the, the the digital platform arena. Seemed like you yes, yes. So that, that. So yeah. Go true. Ahead. So the Sony Sony deal in the Dominican Republic with Wireless Carrier Orange was my first true um, platform. Um, and then um, the thing was is that Sony already had licensed deals uh, for their music catalog in bigger markets in Latin America. So I couldn't really go to Brazil. I couldn't really go to any big market. They didn't have presence in the DR, so that's why they gave me that market. So seeing how I couldn't really grow beyond the Dominican Republic, what I decided to do uh, was develop an application for payments. And um, I focused on the Brazilian market uh, two years later after I launched um, the digital platform and the music platform in the Dominican Republic. So I found a, a potential banking partner that was looking for a mobile payment application um, for their clients to add alongside their products and services that they offer banks. So I started going down to Brazil and uh, finally got a deal done with that banking company called um, um, access, uh, I forget the name, but anyway, um, so we developed the peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, mobile payment platform based off of using QR codes. So it's kind of like, you know, what you have now where yeah. you don't have to use your credit cards to make payments. And so uh, we, I, I, I lived in uh, Brazil for 10 months. So what year was this? Uh, it was a um, uh, mobile application that we built called Track uh, Track Go, and um, it was a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, mobile payment application. So, for example, let's just say um, I was a taxi and um, you were my passenger. Um, I can create um, the pricing in the app, and let's say it was a ten dollar ride. And I would just turn the phone uh, front facing you and it will have a QR code and you would just scan it with the uh, consumer side of the app and your digital wallet is stored already right. into the digital wallet. And then you just click a button to, once uh, you scan the QR code, you just click a button and then the payment is made. So wow. you're not exposing or risking your credit card. You don't have to pull your credit card out uh, and you don't have to pay for cash. So we we developed that in um, in Brazil. And what year was that? What year? Yeah, what year? Uh, that was 2014. 2014. 
So uh, you were on the same page as Cash App and Vitmo and all that good stuff. Um, but more yeah, we were we were actually a little bit before them. We yeah. were a little bit yeah. uh, before Cash App and, and yeah. Vitmo. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so still trying to find that connection. How did you get to animation, Keith? So, of course, I'm building uh, different platforms in different parts of the world. We did one in Nigeria, um, uh, and then we did a, a few in the U.S. In uh, around 2019, we were building a video platform, a mobile application that was short-form video content. And it was, I dare say, kind of a me too TikTok. And that's never how you build anything. Like you always want to build something to solve a problem. Uh, not a me too, because no investor sophisticated one is going to believe that you can overtake TikTok in that, uh, in that, in that vertical. So I was looking around, I, I was traveling, actually I was working on a deal in Nairobi, Kenya, of all places. Uh, and it was a media deal uh, to acquire some media assets. And I had a, a, a partner who was a former CFO of Radio One. Uh, and we were working on a deal in Nairobi. And that's 2019, early 2020. Then, then the pandemic hit. But I was also in the travels between, let's say, Nairobi and South Africa, meeting creatives. And of course, I, you know, I want to talk and know what their needs are uh, as a marketeer. Right. And, you know, the takeaway there was the creators I met in Africa was like, you know, we wish we could connect with our American counterparts. So that that stuck with me. And but then the pandemic happened early 2020 and I came back to the United States and but we're still working on building um, this uh, short form video app. But we were not solving any particular problem for any particular creative community. And again, it's just not how you build an app. And yeah. so I was looking around for where I could locate um, uh, a community of video creators that had a pain point. And um, during the pandemic, um, I started coming across a lot of illustration and comic work on Instagram being done by black and brown and African creators. And in my 20 plus year of uh, being in media, I really never had a reason to pay any attention to animation. I just always thought it was a kid's medium. But I was really impressed by the work that I saw. So I just Googled, like, is there a conference uh, for Black animators? And lo and behold, nothing came up. So I was like, well, you know, if we're going to have an ask uh, from this creative community um, to post or publish their content on our video app, then we have no leverage. We better do something from for them because, I mean, obviously and rightfully so, you know, creators are protective of their IP work, and so we had no credibility, no leverage. So I said, okay, well, let's do a conference to bring um, black and brown and African creators in the animation space together to network, to talk about important subject matter, uh, and to do deals. And so I decided. Uh, with a small team uh, in three months to put on a virtual conference, which is what everyone was doing uh, during the pandemic, as you know. Right. Uh, but simultaneously, uh, a couple of other things happened. Uh, the George Floyd incident happened. So 
you know, a lot of American companies uh, stood up to say, you know, we want to be a part of this, this positive change towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that was there. Um, and then it was well known, you know, in reading or following um, the entertainment trades that, you know, Hollywood had a diversity problem in terms of hiring and, um, and talent. So, you know, I'm used to building platforms, but we didn't build this uh, conference platform. We used this platform called Hopin, which is uh, kind of Zoom on steroids, but more for uh, enterprise type conferencing. I put together a team, reached out to a couple of um, studios unsolicited through LinkedIn, uh, Marvel, Disney, and Sony and say, hey, if we put together, you know, thinking sort of in a pre-marketing kind of way, if we put together this online animation conference for black and brown, underrepresented the BIPOC animators, would this be something that you would be interested in? They all three said yes. So once I got the sort of green light for that, you know, um, I decided like we would have to write the check first because, um, you know, no guarantee that we would get anyone to sponsor. Uh, fortunately, we did have three sponsors come in towards the end. So that was really great. Uh, Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud Network uh, was one of our big sponsors when we launched in 2021. So thankful for them. Uh, and then, you know, we launched and we had, you know, it was a free conference. We marketed all over in Africa and the United States and Canada and the Caribbean and Brazil and Western Europe. And we had 1,900 people attend. And we had um, a little over 60, 65 speakers speak, you know, from various parts of the animation industry. And we, after that first year, really walked away with this embarrassment of riches because we executed on the conference extremely well. I have a really great team. And so that was the origins uh, of how, you know, Afro animation started in 2021. So... Now you're in your third year and yes. we're out of, we're at, some people say we're out of the pandemic, we're out of COVID era. Um, what is the expectation of Afro animation now? Well, we, we scaled it uh, in 2022, virtual conference. Uh, grew it by 257% in terms of attendees uh, from 2021 to 2022. So we, we had 4,900 people in 2022. We also really focused on female representation. It was at 31% uh, in 2021 in terms of attendance, and we grew that to 49% in 2022. So here we are, 2023, we're post-pandemic, as you said. And so the natural progression for me and we did a survey about, you know, post-2022 Afro-Animation to kind of assess whether or not people had interest, that these creators had interest in an in-person conference. Um, I mean, I think there's only so much you can squeeze out of a virtual conference, uh, but people, you know, wanted that real connectivity. Uh, and so it was just a real natural progression to go to an in-person conference in 2023 uh, we settled on Burbank uh, because most of the big animation studios are there in Burbank or close by. Um, 
in, you know, we had no model for an in-person event. It's actually uh, both in-person, it's a hybrid in-person and virtual. So, you know, the virtual passes that you can also buy if you can't make it out to uh, Burbank on April 26th and 27th at the Marriott. Uh, and so we just took the plunge in terms of making the next big move. And so I'm very happy with the responses that we have gotten for ticket sales uh, for the in-person conference as well as virtual. Uh, and so we're, we're expecting this, honestly, uh, I believe will be the first ever uh, in-person conference of its size in specific focus on um, underrepresented or Black or African-American, African, -American, African um, creative animation talent that has ever existed in the entire world. I mean, at least in the United States, maybe over in Africa, they've done something. So this is a, is a legacy type of event that has never occurred before in the United States. So we're really excited to be the first to bring this on. So, so first, can you share what your current um, registration rate is for 2023? Yeah, we're we're expecting um, five hundred people um, um, to come out um, on both days. That's good. Maybe more. I mean, we still have twenty something days to go, and uh, people are buying passes uh, every day. So uh, we always see a huge uptake in um, in the past on the virtual conference of people registering and. And we haven't even pulled the trigger on our most aggressive marketing plan. So we'll go full throttle starting next week. So, I, you know, the numbers could be higher for sure. So hearing your background, I, I, I see why you're now pivoting to another conference called the Future of Music, because you do have that background with as far as with your platform. Um, how did that how did you start that process for that summit? Yeah, so, um, you know, looking at the model that we built around Afro animation, you know, seeing how we have a great team that's that has the ability to execute. Um, I think in my sort of toolkit, uh, sort of instinctively, I've just kind of always be been good at logistics stuff. I, I don't know where it came from, but it just, I could do it with blinders on. For me, it's like no a no-brainer. Um, and so in what caught my attention and why Future of Music came about was last year I was reading something, an article where John Legend had sold his publishing rights to some private equity firm. And then I was like, hmm, interesting, like, okay, private equity is recognizing music catalogs as an asset class. I had not heard of that happening. Um, the last time I heard of something similar to that happening was when Michael Jackson brought the Beatles catalog. And, right. you know, we all know the escalation in the value of that catalog. So I said, hmm, interesting, there's an opportunity here. But simultaneously, um, as we all have probably read uh, at some point or another, artists, music artists were complaining about the payout of um, model for the stream from the streaming platforms. Like they felt like they were not being properly 
pay that they should be compensated more. So therein lies a pain point. And so going back to, you know, you don't ever build anything, a product or service, unless you're solving your problem or there's a pain point. And so for me, in my mind, I, I, I quickly rationalize that there's both an opportunity and a pain point here in the music space. I'm not, you know, from the music industry, but we know how, how to, you know, put on uh, great conferences. We know how to build platforms if we have to go that route. So let's see if we can get the, I don't know, maybe I'll call them silos of the music industry um, together, that being the record labels, that being the artist community, that being, you know, artist management, um, the streaming platforms, uh, technology innovators and private equity together to talk about important subject matters, pain points, opportunities around the music industry. And so Future of Music was born out of that, that, that purpose. And so um, May 31st, also in LA, at the Skirball, uh, we're doing a one-day conference uh, with some of the best minds and forward thinkers in the music industry, uh, thinking about and talking about, like, you know, where is the music industry going? What is it going to look like in five years? How is, you know, technology going to change, you know, the business model? How does the industry get democratized uh, so that, like, YouTube, you know, democratized user-generated video content? Is there a track for being able to do that in the music industry? So we have speakers coming from Nigeria, the UK and it's it's just the talent is just amazing in terms of our speakers. So we'll we'll start uh, marketing um, launching to the public next week on future music. So Keith, how how do you define yourself? Do you find define yourself as a um, innovator, entrepreneur, futurist? How do you define yourself? I don't really. Um, quite honestly, but, you know, I think, you know, I've been fortunate enough to visualize uh, business opportunities um, in certain areas before others. And if, if that makes me a visionary, okay, I'll, I'll take that title, but I've just really had a knack or I really have a knack for being able to see, you know, um, where the um, the hockey puck is going to be and skate there before anybody else. <laughs> so, um, so you do not conform to labels. You do not conform to labels. I, I'm sorry, say that again. You do not conform to labels. You do not view, view yourself no, as one box no. or another. I mean, not. it's not that I don't conform. I just never, never pay too much attention to it. I mean, um, because, you know, I've been doing different things, testing, trying, yeah. some succeeding, some not succeeding. And, you know, until you actually have success, um, you know, I don't see the need, you know, to tie a label to yourself uh, because you're still unproven. I mean, we certainly have had success with Afro animation, 
uh, and that's unfolding into a lot of other different opportunities. So it's just kind of recently what I say, like what I've envisioned or what I pursue from my vision is, you know, I, I can say now there is some success that we've succeeded in certain areas. So, you know, I think the trick for me is just to keep going and seeing what I can build. And then, you know, maybe if we have this conversation two years later and I have done some terrific things that made a difference and a little bit of a dent in the world and all of that great stuff, then maybe we can, you know, tap a label. Okay, so then question, question I have for you. Two years from now, what do you determine as success for you? If we're two years in the future, believe, what does success I, look like for Keith? Why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think for me, um, the vision is um, to um, develop a model, and it's it's unfolding. It's unfolding now with these two conferences, uh, where it looks like maybe it's the Live Nation for entertainment conferences. Maybe that's just, you know, a vertical that you could start. Uh, but obviously that can tap out into, into other verticals. So I kind of really envision, um, you know, a company that's, that is, I dare say maybe somewhat equivalent to Live Nation, but not, you know, in direct competition with them for these superstars. Yeah. And that doesn't mean necessarily it has to be concerts, but I think that we found a niche where there's some pretty significant opportunities uh, in the conferencing uh, or live event space. So what I'm hearing from you is content is king for you. And it's, it's, it's figuring out what type of content you want to um be a part of that business model which which what what type of content is going to be your business model right so yeah content uh for me it, even back in in the syndication days was always key i mean i've seen <laughs> questionable content not in terms of racing this but like you know how did they get that distributed it's like it's it was <laughs> low budget low hanging fruit but so simultaneously Yes, you have to have content, but you also have to have a highway to put that content on. So you have to have a, a, a platform, digital or otherwise, to, right. to let that content go down. And so what I think what's kind of really happened was that I cut my teeth in the last 10 or 12 years learning how to build digital platforms. And just so happened because of the pandemic and I sort of defaulted and, and fell into the live event. Um, uh, space. So those two combinations coming together, you know, we can build, we can get the content, but we can also build technology that puts this in the hands of not just me, but, you know, thousands of other producers of content um, that's not, you know, necessarily uh, a concert related um, component. So I give you the A to Z that you need as a promoter or as a content uh, a producer of a, of a live event, I give you the whole package, you know, A to Z, and you just plug it in, 
you, whatever conference you want to do, it's, you know, everything is in your toolkit. So I think that, you know, from a technology perspective, technology plays a, a key component to democratizing the space and then enabling. So I, let me go back. I'll, I'll put an interesting scenario on the table. Let's just say I started Airbnb before Airbnb and I started renting out rooms and people were, you know, paying for paying me to, to rent my rooms. Okay. So I have one house. I did that successful. It's like opening the first McDonald franchise. Okay. I have one. So let me scale. Let me get 10 more. So I get 10 more houses and I'm doing that. You know, I've got people coming in, they're renting, I'm making money. I think that that's an okay business, but I think what's a, a greater business is to build a platform that allows a million other homeowners to, and then as opposed to you managing 10, you could take a small cut from the other million. And I think, you know, technology enables that. So, you know, I'm, I'm technology or I'm a media guy first in several ways, but, you know, we have the ability to build anything that we want from a technology perspective. So I would want to enable other promoters of events to have that have a platform that they could go to to execute um, from A to Z their conference. That could be an option. I, I haven't said that that's what I'm going to do, but uh, it's a pretty exciting um, concept uh, that I've been sort of thinking about. We're running out of time, Keith. Um, we're running out of time. Um, quick question before we get out of here. Um, if someone came to you and says they want you to be their mentor because they want to do what you're doing, what advice would you give them? Right off the bat, as far well, as- Well, first I- building yeah, blocks, yeah. As, as build, building blocks to what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think advice from my experience is once you find that sweet spot or that, that you're really passionate about um, and you're really good at, you know, take the bull by the horn and, and go for it. Uh, I think you have to be committed to something you have to work at it or train like an Olympian athlete. You know, you have to day in and day out um, and follow your instincts. If your instincts have served you well, you know, there could be naysayers. Oftentimes, you know, there are. Uh, but just keep going for it and, you know, have grit and, and, and you know, listen to obviously listen to advice but you know ultimately you know make the best decision that's for you but you know once you find a sweet spot just don't look back go for it all right so last question um mm -hmm. three songs since you're a music guy three songs that kind of define your life? Um, <laughs> uh, this is probably comical, but um, 
Drake started from the bottom, now you're here. <laughs> uh, actually, even another Drake song, you know, zero to a hundred real quick, because I, I really, like, I move very, very fast. Like, if you can't keep up with me, then we have a problem. Um, I'm like Steph Curry, catch and release. I want to catch the ball and I want to release. The third one would probably be, would be Kanye's Amazing. It's amazing. Four. Um, I know those two are uh, are heavy. Uh, they're coming right around the corner. Um, you know, work from day up, uh, sun up to sundown. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, I've got some things sitting in the back of my head. Um, probably a little too early to to talk about them, but um, but you know. But yeah, of course, I have some stuff. I just uh, got to get past those two first. Yeah. So in other words, we can expect you back to give us that update. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Sonya Dunn Show. I hope you enjoyed our guest, creative innovator Keith White. If you would like to learn more about Keith White, and Afro Animation Summit, visit www.afroanimation.com. Until next time, may the roads that you must journey bring you to a place of harmony. To learn more about us and our available podcasts, visit us at sonydunn.com. <laughs>